Good morning, ladies. How's everybody doing today? Pretty cold out there, isn't it? Well, I did celebrate a birthday on Sunday. Everybody in my family was sick or, or gone, so it's kind of the way I felt about turning 54 anyway, so it's all right. Uh, but uh, yeah, welcome and happy to have you here. Uh, do you have any questions before we begin? All kinds of them. I, I should tell you that I kind of, this, this lecture is kind of front-ended or front-loaded on, on the front end of it um, because this, this confession of Peter and uh, the rebuke of Peter and then the teaching on discipleship, I, I just really see as that being so uh, central to all of Mark. So the, some of the later stuff, uh, I'm not going to talk as much about. So if your questions are like later in, in chapter 9, it might be a good, they might be good questions to ask. Any questions? Oh, yeah, you know, I am going to talk about, obviously, you know, at the very end, because that's the last couple verses, but I wrote about it in the, in the study, so I, I'm, I am just going to, I don't know, kind of brush over it, salt lightly. Oh, that was funny. Uh, so, uh, I, do you want to ask a question, or you, you just want to know what it means? Or I'll do my best to to cover that. Any other questions? Okay, well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day, for these ladies, uh, for this opportunity, just to um, hear from you, hear from your word. Uh, and, you know, stuff that's so convicting, Father. Just uh, pray that you would plant it deeply in our hearts uh, and that we might be able to live as uh, disciples of Jesus Christ as, as he has called us to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're at the midpoint of Mark. These verses, verses 27 through 30, uh, kind of end the first half of Mark. They're like the hinge of, of Mark, and we're going to see a number of differences in the second half. In the first half of Mark, Jesus is crisscrossing Galilee. He's here, he's there, he's across the lake, they get in the boat, they cross again, and he's on the move, uh, and everything moves very quickly. And things often happen immediately. We've seen that word over and over. We're going to see it a few times in the second half, but nowhere near as many times as we have in the first half. And throughout this sort of um, quick movement, Jesus is, is revealing who he is. He's revealing who he is by what he does. He's revealing who he is by what he says, but nobody gets it. His, his family and, and even uh, the Pharisees and his family oppose him. They're against him. His family says he's crazy. His disciples are frankly dense at times. They're hearing what Jesus says, but they're not understanding what it means. Now in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. Um, he, he is, uh, after, immediately after this interchange with his disciples and Peter's uh, profession that he is the Christ, uh, we're going to see a much more deliberate pace. Now the time has come for Jesus to turn and face Jerusalem and, and head that direction, although he's going to go away from Jerusalem, literally, at, at the beginning. 
Um, he's also going to be, there's going to be much more intentional teaching of his disciples. He's going to over and over and over again tell them, hey, this is what's in store for me. This is what's going to happen to me. So at this midpoint is the point where Peter professes the truth about Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But the disciples, not even Peter, like the blind man of chapter 8, still have a blurry vision uh, about what that means. Okay, he's the Messiah, but what does that mean? And they thought it means, it's kind of like Princess Bride. I think that word does not mean what you think it means. I mean, it, it, it means something different than they realized. There are a number of themes in this second half that are very important. Uh, first of all, the suffering of Messiah. As I told you, he's going to tell them over and over again, I must suffer many things. The Messiah must suffer many things. So the question now is no longer, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? They've settled that. He is the Christ. The question now is, what has God sent him to do? What is the mission of Messiah? Also, in this uh, second half, instead of speaking in parables, Jesus will now speak plainly. Uh, and it says that in, in, the, um, uh, in the text, plainly about his suffering. A second theme of the second half is discipleship. Jesus will spell out what it means to follow him in specific and, frankly, sometimes troubling detail. A third theme of this is the way, or being on the way, or along the way. That will appear six times from Mark 8.22 to 1052. So in those couple of chapters, we're going to hear this phrase over and over again, that they are on the way. I know someone who is a, uh, a pastor in the Unity Church, and he often refers to Jesus as a way shower. That's not what Jesus is. He's not a way shower. He's not even one that points out the way. Jesus himself walks and leads his followers on that path. Uh, He is ahead of them on the way. Significantly, though, um, that they are often, the disciples are often misguided and confused on the way as they follow Jesus. I can relate to that, actually. Finally, the disciples' shortcomings uh, will become even more prominent. They'll be even more evident. Up to this point, they've misunderstood. But misunderstanding is going to progress to betrayal and denial and finally abandonment of Jesus. Jesus has healed a number of times physical blindness, but we're going to find that the disciples are too often also spiritually blind. But we can't be too hard on them for that. I'm spiritually blind too often as well. So Peter finally gets it. Or does he? Beginning in verse 27, it says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, 
you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not tell anyone about him. Now, this location is very significant. I believe Jesus was intentional in choosing to have this discussion with his disciples around Caesarea Philippi. Because Caesarea Philippi, and I forgot to put a map up here, but it's in your, uh, in your study, uh, is on the border between Israel and Gentile territory. And it actually was a very, very pagan place. In fact, it was the center for worship of a god called Pan, who was half man and half goat. It never, never ceases to amaze me the lengths to which we will go to try to find something to worship. I'm not worshiping a half man, half goat, no matter what you tell me. Uh, and, and this was the center of that pagan worship. Um, and so it, it, this, this place where they are is literally and spiritually as far away from Jerusalem as one could get and still be in Israel. And it is here that Jesus chooses to have this conversation, and it is here where he is first professed as the Christ, as the Messiah by a human tongue. We heard it in Mark 1.1 from Mark as narrator, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We heard it from God himself at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son. We've heard it from demons even, who just before they've gone flying into pigs, have declared Jesus to be Messiah. Now, for the first time, Peter says, you are the Christ. This location is significant because what what the gospel is telling us is that Jesus is Lord over all of it, over Jew and Gentile, over all territories. His sovereignty extends even to this pagan outpost of Caesarea Philippi. And he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give various answers, all of which are wrong. None of them capture who he is. He is so much more than a prophet, but at least the people believe he was sent by God. That's a good thing. And then he says, okay, then what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps out. I love Peter. Peter just is never afraid to just say it, you know, and and so he jumps in and he says, you are the Christ. Ding, 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 ding. Good answer, Peter. That's great. This confession is the halfway point and the climax of the gospel. Up to this point, we have seen what scholars call Jesus's exousia. His power has been displayed over and over again in healing, in calming the storm, in walking on the water. But at this point, from here to the cross, we will be confronted more with his suffering, indeed his weakness. And this is a surprising confession. Because really, until now, it has not been obvious, at least to those around Jesus, that he is the Messiah. I mean, Israel is no closer to overthrowing the Romans than when he was born in the little town of Bethlehem. And so how could he be Messiah? Because the Jews of Jesus' day thought a number of things about Messiah. Um, They thought that Messiah would perform miracles. Well, check. Jesus did that. They thought he would be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, check. Jesus was. And they thought that he would be holy and be free from sin. Check again. Jesus was. 
all of which were things that were true about Messiah, but they had one misguided understanding of who Messiah would be. And that would be that Messiah would destroy Israel's enemies, the Gentiles, and deliver Israel from the Romans. Jesus not only didn't do this, he didn't ever show any sort of inclination to do it. It wasn't what he was there to do. He had no interest in being that kind of Messiah. Jesus, as one theologian puts it, is the expected Messiah in the most unexpected manner. So at this point, we think Jesus, or Peter gets it. He understands that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's misunderstood about it. In verses 31 through 33, it says, um, oh, wait. Uh, 31 through 33, it says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned uh, and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So this is why Jesus told him in verse 30, told the disciples, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Because they still didn't get it. They had a wrong understanding of who Messiah was. Peter is the closest to getting it, but he's got it all wrong. I learned about this years ago uh, when I was teaching summer nights. I was teaching VBS here uh, at Brookside. I was not teaching adults. I was teaching preschoolers. And my daughter was one of those preschoolers. And the first night I taught about the wedding at Cana. And we had a a wonderful uh, preschool, or not preschool, nursery uh, person. It was Donna, who came up to me afterwards. She was so cute, and she had this little southern accent. She was like, that was so wonderful. You did the best job. You are going to be my preschool teacher forever. I just, I just love that. That was good. I just walked home on a cloud. I'm such a great teacher. And we got home, and we're sitting at the table, and, and Jeff says to Katie, Katie, did, was your mommy your teacher today? And she said, yes. And, and well, what did she teach you? Okay, she said she told the story about when Jesus got married. <laughs> She's the closest one to me, but she didn't get it, and Peter didn't get it. So Jesus is saying, "Don't tell anyone, because you don't understand." what it means. Peter understands that Jesus is Messiah, but he has no context from which to understand what kind of Messiah. A suffering Messiah was unthinkable to him, and in fact, it was unthinkable to every other Jew in Palestine. This is what Dr. James Edwards says. He says, in declaring Jesus as the Christ, Peter has supplied the proper title but he has the wrong understanding. His vision is improved, but still blurry. Jesus will don the servant's towel rather than the warrior's sword. He will practice sacrifice above vengeance. He will not inflict suffering, but suffer himself as a ransom for many. As God's servant, Jesus must remain hidden if he is to complete God's appointment. This Peter does not know And consequently, Jesus swears him to silence, lest a false report arouse revolutionary fervor. Jesus must now begin to teach the true meaning of Peter's confession. For this, 
Peter and the disciples are quite unprepared. So he's going to tell them, he's going to teach them many things about what it means for him to be Messiah. So in in verse uh, 31, Jesus explains for the first time what is going to happen to him. He's not just predicting the future in these verses. He's trying to clue the disciples into what God is doing. But as one theologian put it, it is all a muddle to them. So Peter jumps in again and perhaps literally jumps in front of Jesus as he's walking along the way with them. And says, no, this this cannot be. And in doing so, Peter aligns himself with Satan's plans rather than God's. And the scripture tells us that Jesus rebukes Peter. That is a strong word. That word for rebuke is the same word that was used when Jesus rebuked the demons and sent them away. Now, why does Jesus turn around? It says in verse 33 that he literally turns away and turns to the disciples. Well, it's probably or possibly at least because he knows that the disciples share this wrong understanding. And so he wants to make sure that they understand, I'm not just talking to Peter here. So he addresses all of them. But he may also be literally putting Peter behind him. Um, and when, In fact, one possible translation of what Jesus says here is, out of my sight, Satan. And so he may literally be putting Peter behind him. Whether it's literally or figuratively, the point is that Jesus will not let Peter or the disciples or anyone block his way from walking the road that God has set before him. It is a way of suffering. This is what Dr. Edward Schweizer says. He says, God is therein precisely God and that he can do what humanity cannot do. God can allow himself to be rejected, to be made low and small without thereby being driven into an inferiority complex. Whoever understands the suffering of the Son of Man understands God. It is there and not in the heavenly splendor that one sees the heart of God. And that is the point that Jesus is trying to make to his disciples. So now Jesus is going to talk about what it means to be a disciple. Uh, And this was needed correction because, as, as Dr. Edwards puts it, a wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. Because discipleship is a call to follow Christ, and it is a path that necessitates sacrifice and suffering of the disciple, just as Jesus' path did. This is what he says to them. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come in power. So he calls the crowd. This isn't just the 12 disciples he's speaking to. He calls others to come listen, to speak to them about what discipleship means. This is a message that all of Jesus' disciples need to hear. 
not just the 12. And we need to hear it as well. And Jesus gives them three demands. First, he says, deny yourself. There is no self-promotion in discipleship. It's not an extracurricular activity. It's not a volunteer part-time position. Discipleship encompasses all of life. A disciple says, as Jesus did, not my will, but thine be done. Secondly, he says, take up your cross. This is very vivid imagery for Jesus' followers. And it would have sounded at least strange and probably even offensive to them before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Take up a cross. A cross was an instrument of cruelty, of of shame, of death. What do you mean, take up my cross? One theologian says the image of the cross signifies a total claim on the disciple's allegiance and the total relinquishment of his resources to Jesus. In Mark's day, this was not merely a theoretical truth. We take up a metaphorical cross. But for the first readers of Mark's gospel, it was quite often a literal cross that they were having to take up. And disciples must be ready to deny themselves, even to the point of giving their lives. This is not just a theoretical truth today as well. 21 Coptic Christians lost their lives last week because they followed Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus says, follow me. We are to follow Jesus. Follow him, not the world. Follow his path, the path that he has laid out, not the one we choose for ourselves. Now, why? In verses 35 through 38, he gives the rationale for this. And he says that it is in losing our lives and denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus, it is in doing that for the sake of Christ that we find our lives. This is one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith. That word for life and losing one's life is the word psyche, and it's an important word because it means more than just our physical existence. It means our personhood, our being, our soul. It is the core of our existence. So if we value our lives and the ability to live them in the way we see fit, more than we value Jesus and following him, we will lose our very being, our very soul, our existence. You know, I often find it interesting the way people clamor for um, Warren Buffett's opinion. They call him the Oracle of Omaha. Interesting. And everybody wants to know, what does he say? How can I do what he does? I want to be like Warren. Being the richest man in the world profits Warren Buffett exactly nothing if he does not know Jesus. Those people clamoring for his advice for his opinion, would do much better to ask any one of the 21 Christians that gave their lives last week. Truly, it would profit them more. 
And then at the end of this, Jesus gives this this confident promise. But, But what does it mean that some of you will not taste death? until you see the, uh, the Son of Man coming in his glory. Some theologians say that he means his physical return, his return at the end of time. But there are problems with that, as you've probably already guessed. Then Jesus was wrong, obviously. Uh, and, and frankly, by the time they figured out he was wrong, they would have edited this out of the Bible. The fact that, that the early church had a different view of this than Jesus' second coming is is proven by the fact that some scribe didn't go, we're just going to erase that? We're just going to take that out? of No, it's in all of the ancient manuscripts right on through. Um, so that, I, I, there, there are really problems with that. We, we try to sometimes, we want to, because we've just assumed that what it means, we want to brush this first under the rug. You know, how do we explain that Jesus was wrong? Um, don't worry, there's an answer for that. Uh, some people say the transfiguration, but that's kind of weird. You know, I mean, Jesus is getting a little dramatic, isn't he? Some of you won't taste death because in six days I'm going to be transfigured. Plus, only three guys saw that, and they were told to keep silent. So that doesn't make much sense either. What I believe he's talking about here is his death and resurrection. And, and that is what makes the most sense. And it might also even include Jesus' ascension and, and Pentecost. But mostly he's referring to his death and resurrection because the truth of Jesus' glory will be fully witnessed and understood after the cross and the empty tomb. At the foot of Jesus' cross, the guy that was in charge of his execution, this is a spoiler alert, when he saw how Jesus died, said this, surely this man was the son of God. He caught the glory. A Gentile Roman executioner saw the glory of Jesus Christ, and certainly after the resurrection. Um, So Jesus is saying, follow me. I had the most amazing lesson in discipleship this week from my 15-year-old son who went on a mission trip last week to Minneapolis because, you know, that's where everybody goes on a mission trip. In February, he came home and he said, when I said, it's cold, he said, you have no idea. And I said, I spent four years in Minnesota. I know how cold it can be. And he was at a Hindu temple because their, their time there was reaching out to mostly Asian populations and Buddhists and Hindus. And he was at a Hindu temple. And, and he felt this oppression on him. He said, Mom, I felt like I couldn't even breathe. And I just wanted to take all those idols and just knock them down and just destroy them. And then God began doing a work on my heart. When he was in the midst of this, I got a text, Mom, pray for me. And I texted back, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, he's been in a car wreck. What's going on? And so I texted back. I said, what's going on, buddy? And he said, God's really working heavy on my heart right now. Pray for me. And I, not knowing anything that was going on, just texted, texted back, just say yes to God. And he texted back, that's what I'm doing. And in the midst of this anger, he felt, to, to, to knock down the idols, he felt God saying, I'm calling you to help these people. And he said, how can I love these people? They're blind. And, and, he said, and God said, I'm calling you to help these people. And he just started saying yes to God. Instead of saying yes to self and no to God, he started saying yes to God. And the next day as he was in prayer back at the base uh, for, for the mission group, he, was in, he said, I was sobbing and I was in tears and I was on my knees and I looked up and on the wall I saw a map of India. And God said at the same time that I did, that's it. 
My 15-year-old son believes that he is called to be a missionary to the people in India. And he's scared to death. And so's his mom. But I'm not going to block his path. I need to trust that he is hearing God as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple does. And it has, has convicted me tremendously. It's also made me think that every single person on the planet needs to send their kids to Cornerstone School because, wow, is amazing thing, amazing things going on there. That's what discipleship it is. It's not a path of ease. It is a path of self-sacrifice. It is a path of suffering. So six days after this, Jesus takes three disciples up on a high mountain. Now, the traditional place for this is often believed to be Mount Tabor, which you see is down there across from Nazareth. Oh, I've got a little thing here. Across from Nazareth right here. But where was Jesus? In the area around Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon, which is much larger and much lonelier than Mount Tabor, which was inhabited, it says they were alone and it was a high mountain. So it's much more likely that they were at Mount Tabor um, when Jesus gave this special revelation. And, and a mountain is, is actually a, a traditional place for special revelation in Scripture, where God reveals himself to humanity. And in fact, there are a number of similarities with Moses and Sinai when he went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Um, he says that it was six days later. Now, that's weird, because up until this point, he's just said immediately. He hasn't given, and after that, and he, he hasn't given us time. He specifically says, six days later, Moses was on the mountain for six days. Um, another connection is the shining countenance of Jesus and of Moses after meeting with God, we learn in Exodus. Jesus and Elijah and Moses were enveloped in a cloud. When Moses was on the mountain with God, he also was enveloped in a cloud. And then afterward, when Moses came down from the mountain and when Jesus came down from the mountain, the people were astonished. Whether it was at a shining countenance or whether it was because they were just seeing the person uh, seeing Jesus, we don't know. There are a number of, of similarities. And this is what the text says. It says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up Three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say. Would you? I wouldn't know what to say. You know, it's like, awkward, what do we do now? Uh, For they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I think he was saying, Peter, shut up and listen. Suddenly when they looked around, they they no longer saw anyone with them, except Jesus. We'll go backwards. So this amazing thing happens six days afterward. Why Moses and Elijah? Why are they up there? Uh, And there are a lot of interesting 
uh, answers that people give. But the main thing, I believe, is that they were both what are called eschatological figures in the Old Testament, meaning that they figured somehow into the ministry of Messiah, that, that there's prophecy about the coming of Messiah, and they are part of that. In fact, Malachi 4, 4 through 6 in particular talks about Elijah and Moses and their role in uh, the place of the coming of the Messiah. And I had you read that this week. So this is more confirmation that Jesus is Messiah. And oddly, the three disciples with him actually understand this. uh, As their question as they're coming down from the mountain will show. They also know that it is a freaky display of Jesus' glory but they probably don't get the full extent of what it means. And God comes down in a cloud and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen to what? What's he going to say? Well, listen to everything he says, for one thing. But more specifically, what, listen to what Jesus tells you about his own path of suffering and death, the part they don't get, the part they think has to be all wrong. That Messiah must suffer, must die and rise again. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, listen to it. Now there are a number of purposes about the transfiguration, and I'm going to kind of fly through these in the interest of time. But first of all, it shows that Jesus is greater than even Moses and Elijah. And there are hints about that. They were there with Jesus. They were talking to Jesus. Jesus is the primary one. Uh, secondly, it is a revelation, the transfiguration is a revelation of who Jesus is, that he is Messiah, that he is God's son. There's great significance in the cloud coming because in the Old Testament, often God shows up in a cloud and he reveals his glory in a cloud. He led the Israelites with a cloud. When he came in to, to fill the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, it was with a cloud hovering over and, and it was so, God's glory was so freaky awesome that the people were like, could you turn it down, God? Because this is freaking us out just a little bit. And so that cloud is also showing that Jesus is, is God visible in the flesh. He is the invisible God made visible. And finally, uh, the final purpose of the, of the transfiguration is to encourage the disciples to listen to Jesus. Uh, as God says, even when what he's saying is hard to hear. And that's a good word for all of us. Well, on the way down, the disciples have a little conversation with Jesus, and they ask him about Elijah. The first thing Jesus says is, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Oddly enough, um, this is the one command of silence that they keep. I think it's because they're like, don't worry, we're not going to tell anyone because we have no idea what you're talking about. Um, But... Then they ask him, why do the teachers say that Elijah must come first, must come before Messiah? Um, And Jesus' answer is basically, he has come, and they killed him. And he is referring to John the Baptist in that. So they get down from the mountain, and there's this huge argument going on. The Pharisees are arguing with the disciples. I mean, it's just this huge commotion. And, and so the disciples, while they were left behind, the nine other disciples, are attempting to continue ministry without Jesus present. And it doesn't work out so well for them. Because ministry never succeeds when we go our own way. And when we leave Jesus out of the equation, whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they fall into crisis. 
the same could be said of us. So in figuring out what's going on, this boy, this father boy that is possessed by a demon, his father comes and begins to explain what's happening. And he is desperate for a cure, as many others have been. Um, but this demon-possessed boy, uh, the, the struggle with him is not a struggle with a demon. The struggle is a struggle for faith. And the, the father says, if you can help, would you please help? And Jesus says, if you can. As regards your if you can, everything is possible for those who have faith. That doesn't mean that we can do anything just so long as we have faith. You know, I can fly. No, I can't, uh, no matter how much faith I have. It means that those who have faith will not set, put limits on what God can do. And the meaning of faith here is important because our world tends to think that faith is just like faith and faith. It's just you got to have faith, faith, faith. Faith in what? It isn't just faith that everything will turn out all right. True faith, saving faith, means faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, as we have seen over and over again in Mark, true faith is faith that trusts, follows, and acts. The father brought the boy to Jesus. That was an act. That was a mustard seed of faith. True faith also understands its own inadequacy. I love this quote from Dr. Edwards. True faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has, when he yields his insufficiency, to the true sufficiency of Jesus. So then we learn, go on, and in these last 20 verses are more lessons on discipleship. And I'm not going to read a lot of this, and we're going to have to fly through it. But in verses 30 through 37, Jesus again predicts his death and resurrection. Um, and uh, the disciples still don't get it, so they don't ask any questions. It's a lot like how I took chemistry in college. I would try to study for a test, and I think, I don't get this. I'm just going to go out for pizza. <laughs> not going to get a tutor. Not going to ask questions, because I just don't get it. And that's kind of where they are. Um, and and they're, they're going to prove that they don't get it, because they're going to have another argument. And they get to the house, and Jesus says, what were you talking about along the way? Well, what they were talking about was which of them was the greatest. He's just said, deny yourself and follow me. And they're like, I'm the greatest. Because Jesus picked me first. No, I'm the greatest because he put me in charge of the money. No, it's like two kids fighting over a toy. I want it. No, I want it. No, I'm. They don't understand what he's saying. So while Jesus is trying to explain to him, to explain to them how to humbly lay down their lives, they're trying to prop themselves up. And he asks, what were you talking about? And they say nothing. And I, I love what one theologian said. He said, their silence is a wordless confession. So Jesus then turns and gives them some lessons on true greatness. True greatness puts others before self. True greatness serves others. True greatness welcomes those who are the least in society. And in welcoming them, we welcome Jesus. And in welcoming Jesus, we welcome God. So do you think the disciples got it? Not even close. 
Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told them to stop because he was not one of us. John is equating himself with Jesus. He doesn't say he wasn't one of your disciples. He wasn't one of us. And of course, I'm important and I get it. He has this elitist attitude. Um, And there's great irony here because just a few verses ago, they couldn't exercise the demon. They're, the, they muddled the whole thing, and now they're stopping some guy who's actually successful in, in um, exercising demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus answers by saying, for whoever is not against us is for us. We need to understand that sentence in its context. Taken out of its context, it can become dangerous. It doesn't mean that whoever is not against Jesus is a Christian. At this point in history, when Jesus uttered these words, no one, not even those closest to him, can make a full and accurate assessment concerning Jesus. That's going to have to wait until after his death and resurrection. So at this point, anyone who at least had a favorable disposition toward Jesus or wasn't actively opposed to him was in some sense for him, at least to the degree that they could be at that point. And then he gives them this warning um, about not causing others to stumble. And his point in this is that anyone who entices a believer, that's what Jesus means by little ones, a believer, God's child, to sin, will be judged, eternally judged. And then he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And that's That's pretty serious stuff. And and there is hyperbole in it. But we can't miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying that sin is a serious thing. And because Jesus is using hyperbole, we can't allow that to lessen the force of this passage. Our sin nailed Jesus to the cross. How can we take it lightly? It is a serious thing. And then we come to these salt statements, which um, I talked about in the lesson. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Um, the, everything being salted with fire, his point is this, that because the, it, uh, they used salt in their sacrifices. Um, and it was, uh, it was used as a picture of suffering. So what Jesus is saying is that when we suffer, we are following the way of Jesus. We are following him. And our suffering is an offering to God. And it in, su- it in some sense purifies us. None of us wants the path of suffering. We don't go, oh, yes, yeah, sign me up for that one. And yet, we learn things on that path that we can learn no place else. And then what is he saying in verse 50? Remember what the disciples had been doing? They'd been arguing with each other. And they'd been been bickering back and forth about all kinds of things. He's actually talking about salt here. Because what's at every dinner table? Salt. And what he's giving here is this picture of table fellowship. I've only seen this show like three times. but It's the one with Tom Selleck that they're all police officers, the whole family. And at least at the, every end of the three episodes I've seen, they all end up around the family dinner table. And whatever's happened, they set it aside for the fe- That's kind of a picture, I think, of what, 
what he's saying. When he says have salt among yourselves, he's saying have communion with one another. Live in community, in love with one another. Stop arguing and love one another in community. And that's where I want to end today living in community, because the disciples were bickering with one another about things that did not matter. Have you ever done that? Yeah. We as believers do it all the time, and it does a lot of harm to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't even get along. How good can Jesus be? I've heard the saying, Christians eat their own, which is a very graphic way of depicting the petty battles that we fight within the church. And hear me, my husband said this one time to me, that is not where the battle is supposed to take place. The battle is not inside the church. But we do that. And so Jesus says, have salt among yourselves. Live in community with one another. When we went to the Family Life Conference, if you're going this weekend, it's wonderful. Um, a weekend to remember. The first time we went, people teased us. I don't know if you were there, but we'd been married six months. I was like, how many problems can you have? Changed our lives. Our marriage would be completely different without having gone six months after we were married to the weekend to remember. And one of the word pictures they gave there was that when when a husband and wife are battling with each other, it's like two people in a foxhole shooting at each other. And they said, your husband, your spouse, is not your enemy. Truly, other believers are not your enemy. And when we pick battles with each other, it's like two people in a foxhole shooting at each other because that person is not my enemy. Ladies, we have an enemy. We have a real enemy, and he loves it when we bicker with one another over things that don't matter. Stand for the truth? Yes, stand for the truth. But if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of what we argue about has nothing has everything to do with pride. And when we argue with one another, Satan wins. And we can't let Satan win. Instead, let us, as Jesus told us, put others before ourselves and in service to Jesus and to each other, choose to lay down our grievances with our brothers and sisters in Christ, perhaps our husbands, and truly love one another. The world is watching, ladies, and they will know we are Christians by our love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all this truth. There's so much here. I wish we had more time to unpack it all. But Father, help us unpack what we have heard, what we have learned, and live it in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.